The title of this morning's message is The Cost of New Wine. The Cost of New Wine. And we read about it in Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would cause it to come alive, help us to understand it, to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who are familiar with Luke's gospel know that of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke was the one that set out on purpose to write a chronology to organize the events of Jesus' life in an accurate historical chronology, putting those events in order. And so when you read the first three chapters of Luke, you'll read familiar stories because a lot of times we read those stories at Christmas time, and it, and it recounts the earliest uh, years of Jesus' life, his birth, uh, his, his childhood, what little we know of it is found in those three chapters. In chapter 4, we read of the temptation of Jesus, and this is really the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but it begins in this encounter with the devil and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But then after he comes out of the wilderness, after this temptation, we see the beginning of his ministry, and at the very beginning of his ministry, there are people who get it, people who understand what he's teaching and what he's saying, and you have others who not only don't get it, they oppose it. And we see that in chapter 4. After the temptation, Jesus comes, and around the Sea of Galilee in those towns and communities, he's preaching about the good news of the kingdom, he's teaching the truth, he is healing the sick, he is performing miracles, and then he goes home to Nazareth. Now you would think at Nazareth, of all places, he would have been most welcome. 
Those were people that have known him his entire life. But it is there he first experiences rejection. And not only rejection, as he began teaching, and he reads from Isaiah, and he describes the Messiah, and that he is that. Not only does he meet rejection, he meets outright rage and anger. And so much rage and anger in his hometown, people who have known him his entire life, they're ready to take him and throw him off a cliff. And that's at the beginning of his ministry. Religious people, familiar religious people, actively opposing, angry at Jesus for what he's teaching. He goes on to Capernaum. Something remarkable happens there. He goes into the synagogue, and as he begins to teach, a man stands up. This is no ordinary man. This man has a demon. He's demonized. And you can read about the encounter. Jesus triumphs over the demon. But what's remarkable about that is that a demonized man was entirely comfortable in a religious atmosphere. He was able to come and be a part of the synagogue. He was able to sit there. He was able to participate. He was able to be a part of it. It was never a problem until Jesus showed up. And then there was this incredible reaction. When we come to chapter 5, we have the calling of the first disciples to follow him, Peter, James, and John. They were part of a fishing company that they had organized, and they were all partners in this expedition. And there are many healings that follow. There's Peter's mother-in-law. He heals a leper. A paralytic is, is healed and let down through a roof. Now, when this guy is let down through the roof because there was no other way into the house, because there were so many crowds, so many people, and the religious leaders were there. You remember the story. Four friends went up, broke a hole in the roof, and lowered this paralyzed man through the hole in the roof down to where Jesus was. Before Jesus heals the man, he says something that upsets the religious people. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you for your sins. And the religious people react to that. They're upset by that. They're not only disagreeing with Jesus, they're saying he is being blasphemous. He's doing something that is not for God, pro-God, with God, in line with God's teaching. He is absolutely denying God by forgiving that man who's paralyzed. And then we come into chapter 5 to this passage that I just read. And we read this story about Levi and how the religious leaders began to really ask some serious questions. They got problems with Jesus. They got some serious issues with him. I came to know Jesus coming out of another Christian tradition. And I do not want to get bogged down in the details, but I can say this. I was raised, raised in an environment where if you did all the right things, said the right prayers, went to the right services, participated in the right activities, that if you did all the right things, you had some reasonable assurance that you might go to heaven when you die. And I was such a participant in that particular religious tradition that at one time I thought I wanted to be a minister, a priest in that tradition. As a young man, spent time in a Vincentian seminary in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. It doesn't exist there anymore. But, but went there thinking, that's what I would do. I would be a part of this. 
When I got, we moved, my dad was in the service, we moved, we were transferred to an air base just outside Dayton, Ohio, right, Patterson Air Force Base. And it was there that I stopped going to church. I was a, a teenager and I, I just quit. And I was unhappy. And the world became a very dark place for me. And if I could tell you the whole story, I could tell you that there were many times and one time in particular where I sought to end my life. I was that unhappy. And if you're a teenager today and you're thinking that way, I want you to know that 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 is not uncommon, but you need to know that there is another way, and I found that other way. I began, a friend invited me to go to church with them. It was not the church I grew up in. It was a different kind of church. It was a Baptist church. And I was puzzled because they seemed to go to church all the time. I didn't understand why people had to go to church that much. But I was also captivated by the fact that they would take the Scripture and they would teach from the Scripture. And they took the position, they told me, they took the position that we want to do all that God says for us to do. We love Him, and if we trust Jesus, He saves us, not by our works, but because of His work on the cross. And I got it. That gospel was good news to me. Because I had tried and tried and tried and tried and I never could be good enough for God. And they shared with me passages, my favorite, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace, a gift, for by grace, a gift are you saved and that not of yourselves. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I realized that I could have worked my way straight to hell. I could have gone to all those services. I could have done everything that I was told. And, and, and I said, where do all these teachings come from? Where do all these traditions come from? Where do all these things come from? I discovered they were man-made. Handed down through the centuries, but these traditions were man-made. Religious tradition, rules, habits, man-made. And had I stayed with that, I never would have understood the gospel. I saw Jesus on a cross every Sunday. I had no idea why he was there. And so I understood finally that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. All my sins. My past sins, my present sins, my future sins. If one sin was left, I could never go to heaven. I could never know God. When I put my trust in Jesus, I was trusting him to carry away all my sins. I got to be honest with you. When I first came, came to know Jesus, and he saved me and forgave me and took away my sin, I was pretty upset about what I had been taught. I was pretty antagonistic about it. I was so excited to be with a group of people that said, we're going to just do what the Bible says. If God has revealed it to us, we want to be about that. Not about the man-made stuff, not about tradition, not about all those rules and habits and customs and all these things that have nothing to do with the gospel, everything to do with my trajectory to hell. I wanted nothing to do with that. But I was so excited. No one told me to share Jesus. I shared Jesus. 
I just shared him with people. I turned a lot of people off. I was a little excited about it. Nothing like a new convert to turn people off. I was obnoxious about it. I mean, I was just so excited. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? <laughs> He's changed my life. Do you know him? And so I come to this passage of Scripture, and, and I need you to hear me today. When I talk to you about tradition, when I talk to you about religious rules, when I talk to you about man-made customs and habits and things that creep into the church, you need to understand that I feel opposition to that in my gut. It is visceral. Why? Because it was condemning me to hell. And I take that personally. And I was so happy to be with Baptist people because they didn't have any traditions and customs. Tradition can be a vehicle for truth, but can also be a great obstacle to truth. And you and I need to look at the things that we do. We always need to ask why. What is the purpose? Why do we do the things that we do? Is it because God said to do it? Or is it because it's the way we've always done it? So Jesus is dealing with people in this passage of Scripture who are bound by tradition. They are so bound by tradition, they cannot see Christ in Jesus. And they're about to miss him altogether. Jesus is the new wine. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But he is the new wine. I want the new wine. I want to know Jesus as much as I can know of Jesus on this side of heaven. Don't you? I don't want to talk about Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I want to hear from Jesus. I want to experience Christ in my life. And some of us, you may be content to read about it, to think about it, to reflect about it, to argue about it. You can have your articles of faith, but we're called to live by faith, not just read about it. And so Jesus is dealing with those individuals, and he wants to set them free. But there's a cost. There's a real cost involved for that new wine. If I'm serious about it, if I'm serious about walking with him, if I'm serious about knowing him as he really is, there's a cost to that. I want to share with you what those are. What will it cost you to experience him? What will it cost you to experience him? Number one, reliance on self. Reliance on self. When I got saved, I couldn't rely on me anymore. My reliance, my hope was in Christ, not in me. And I was set free. And I was old enough to understand it. And I, I know that when you're saved when you're six, saved when you're five, saved when you're seven. You may not have understood what I understood when I was 17, but I understood what God was saving me from. He was saving me from my sin, and he was saving me from my efforts to save myself. And so reliance on self is something that's going to cost you. If you're a self-reliant person, self-made man, self-made woman, you're going to have to give that up. You can't experience Jesus unless you trust Jesus. You can't rely on yourself. In verse 27, it says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. 
He couldn't stay at the tax booth and follow Jesus. He couldn't be continuing to rip people off as a tax collector and follow Jesus. He couldn't stay where he was and follow Jesus. The Bible says he left everything. The very next verse says he left everything, got up, left everything to follow Christ. So Levi is the story of a dramatic conversion and the events that come after that. Levi leaves everything. Jesus said, follow. And the word is, um, is nonstop. It's imperfect tense. It means to follow and keep following. And Jesus said, follow and keep following me. That's what he says to you and me. And he says that to Levi. So he's, he's calling Levi. Now, when he called Peter, okay, he was a fisherman. Not well educated, not seminary trained, didn't study at the highest level of rabbinical schools, but he was a basically a okay Jewish guy, responsible guy, called Peter, called James, called John. But Levi, are you kidding me? You called Levi? The tax collectors were not paid by the Roman government. The money they made was collected when they gathered the mandatory tax from you that had to go to the government and whatever they thought they could get from you in addition. They added to it. So if the government said you've got to give 10, he thinks you can give 20, he'll take 20, and the Roman soldiers are standing there to enforce it. And boy, they took everything they could. Levi was one of those. He was a Jewish man working for a Roman government. And Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. Religious leaders were sucking wind. They could not believe what Jesus had just done. They don't understand what makes this Jesus tick. He seems to disregard everything that we regard as important. He seems to regard as important everything that we think is wrong and unimportant. We don't get Jesus. Well, the result was a couple criticisms. Jesus knew about criticism. Here's the first criticism. It comes up in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we've talked about it here multiple times, how in the Middle East, even to this day, if you eat a meal with someone, you are expressing great friendship and intimacy with them. You don't eat with just anybody. When Levi was saved, when he began to follow Jesus, he throws a big party in Jesus' honor. And he invites the only people he knows other tax collectors, other sinners, other messed up people. Those are all the people that come to the party. And Jesus went to the party. They have a problem with that. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know, Jesus, you're not supposed to hang out with people like that. Why are you doing that? Second criticism, after he answered that one, was found in verse 33. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. They don't look very spiritual. They don't look very religious. They don't, they don't wear a coat and ties. They don't do all the stuff that religious people are supposed to do. They don't sing the right songs. They don't do any of that stuff. 
Jesus heard that criticism also. Why don't you do what we do, Jesus? Why don't you act like we act? To their credit, the Pharisees were very serious about the Word of God. To their credit, taking the first five books of the Old Testament, Matthew, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was the Torah, the law. They took that law very seriously. They wanted to take the law of God and they wanted to apply it to their lives. That was good. That is good. But if there's 300, 400 plus people sitting here and I read to you something to apply to your life, there's 400 plus ways to apply it to your life. But that's not how they approached it. They came up with a, a set of rules out of every law that they found in the Old Testament. In other words, that there were 300 laws, they came up with 300,000 rules. And they took all those laws and expanded them. For example, in the day of Jesus, for the Sabbath, they had 39 specific regulations associated with keeping the Sabbath day holy. That was Saturday. They had 39 specific ways to do that. Let me give you some examples about keeping the Sabbath day holy. You weren't supposed to work on Saturday. Uh, he that reapeth corn on the Sabbath to the quantity of a fig is guilty, and plucking corn is reaping. Couldn't do that on the Sabbath. Rubbing the grain out was threshing. In fact, the very next chapter of Luke, when, if you read it, that's exactly what the disciples did. Boy, they got heat for that. Rubbing the grain out was threshing. Even to walk on the grass on the Sabbath was forbidden because it was a type of threshing. Your feet walking over the grass. Couldn't do it. When, uh, when I served out west in Southern California, First Baptist Church, Beverly Hills, we had a guy named Max from Arizona. Good guy would come and work on our building for us. Retired shop teacher. One day he's up on a ladder. He's working on repairing a light fixture over the entrance to our, our building. He's doing it on a Saturday morning. An Orthodox Jewish guy comes walking down the sidewalk. We had Orthodox Jewish people all over the neighborhoods. Beverly Hills. Jewish people everywhere. We weren't far from the Fairfax District. Heavily Jewish community. So this guy comes. He's got on the black overcoat. He is walking to or from the synagogue. I have no idea. I was out there holding the ladder. I heard this conversation. Max is at the top of the ladder working. He sees this guy out of the corner of his eye, but he doesn't look at him. The guy comes over, Jewish guy, folds his arms, looks at Max up on that ladder. Max still isn't looking at him, but the man's looking right at him, just drilling holes at him. Finally, he says up to Max, he says, you know, if you were Jewish, you wouldn't have to do that today. And Max said, yeah, but I'd have to do it tomorrow. In the Talmud, it says, in the case a woman rolls wheat to remove the husk, that's considered sifting. That's a violation of the Sabbath. If, if she rubs the head of wheat, it's regarded as threshing. If she just cleans off the sides of it a little bit, it is sifting out the fruit. If she throws it up in her hand, it's winnowing. All of that was violation. It hadn't changed much for those who are serious about keeping the law in this day and time. In the Old Testament law, you couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath. To this day, Orthodox Jews will not flip an electric switch in their house because it's starting a fire. So some of them have automatic timers that do the task for them. And that's okay.
Now, if you, if you changed this traditional understanding of the law, if you altered it in any way, if you at- it was seen as an attack, it was seen as a threat, why? The word I want you to remember this morning is sayeg. Sayeg, it's a Hebrew word. It means little fences. Sayeg. Here was the rationale that the Jewish rabbis had. If this speaker right here is the law of God, my goal is not to break the law of God. That means I don't want to go past this law. I don't want to go past it. So the way to teach people not to break that law because you don't want to break the law of God, the way to teach them to do that is you back away from the law and you put a rule in place like a little fence that keeps you from the law. A little fence, it's called sayak, little fences. And they would put a little fence and then they'd put another little fence, another rule, another regulation. They'd put another little fence, another rule, another man-made custom, religious ritual, whatever it was. They'd put another little rule. They'd put another little rule right there. And here's the rationale behind it. In order to break the law of God, which is wrong, I have to break all these other rules first. And so the idea is if I can keep you busy with the little rules, you'll never get to the big stuff. And that was their logic. There was a rabbi in the early... uh, who was not a Christian, but he lived during the period of the early church from AD 50 to AD 135. His name was Rabbi Akiva ben Joseph. He said, quote, tradition is a fence. That's our word, saig. He said, tradition is a fence that safeguards the Torah or the law. Tradition is the fence. The problem is Jesus was always tearing down the fences. Jesus, like a laser beam, like a cruise missile, was always going after the fences. He drove them nuts. He made them angry. They wanted to throw him off cliffs. Why? He was going after the little fences. He was attacked at least seven times in the Gospels on Sabbath observance alone. He didn't keep the little rules. He didn't keep the traditions. He didn't keep the customs. He was marching to the beat of a different drummer. Some different kind of guidance system was operating inside of him, and he called his followers to follow him and then to learn ultimately what that guidance system was about. But it wasn't about little rules and customs and man-made habits and traditions and so forth. The point of the law was to reveal who God is, The point of the law was to give you a mechanism by which you could express your love for God. The point of the law was to discover that you couldn't even keep the whole law properly. They had missed the point. They had turned the law into an exercise of self-reliance. If I do these things, there's the law of God, here are the little fences. If I keep all the little fences, I'm better than the average soul. And I got a better than average shot of getting into heaven. Self-reliance. And you can't trust in yourself and have the new wine of Jesus. You just can't. And they were so puzzled by him. It's about a relationship. Remember those objections they gave? They said, why do you eat and drink with people like that? He said, because I'm a physician. I'm here for sick people. The righteous don't need me, but the sinners do. 
And he made it really personal, really fast. It wasn't about their rules, about who you should eat with and who you shouldn't eat with. It was about your relationship to me, Jesus was saying. He said, I'm the physician. And the second objection, they said, you know, John's disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, they fast and pray. They look religious. They look holy. But yours eat. They throw parties. What's up with that? And Jesus said, here's something you need to know. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. He made it personal again. He zeroed in like a laser beam. He said, you're caught up in rules and looking religious and looking holy and looking like you got all the right stuff together. He said, but let's talk about this. How's your relationship to me? I'm the physician. I'm the bridegroom. You can have all that stuff if you want, but the cost is of the new wine, the cost of relationship with me is you got to chuck that stuff over the wall. You follow me. And so Levi had the right answer. Levi left everything to follow him. There's a second thing you have to lose if you're going to receive the new wine. And not only reliance on self, but resistance to the Spirit. Look at verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So, why can't you sold, sew new patches on old cloth? Why can't you pour new wine in the old wineskins? Because the result's the same. There's a dynamic that takes place where the two can never mix successfully. The two can never be brought together successfully. You can't have the old and the new coexist. Can't be done, Jesus is saying. The reason you can't put new wine in old wineskins, contrary to what some Bible teachers strain to try to tell you, is that somehow that the wine in the, in the Bible did not contain alcohol. If you're a chemist, you know that that's not true. And based on what Jesus is saying, you pour new wine into a fresh wineskin, and there's a chemical process that begins to take place because yeast is present in those broken up grape juice uh, components. The yeast is there. And yeast grow, yeast divide, yeast reproduce. And as they reproduce and grow, they have two byproducts. One is alcohol, the other is CO2, carbon dioxide, gas. This whole picture, what Jesus is telling, can never happen unless the normal fermentation process is taking place. And so you have the production of CO2 gas, and that gas is expanding that, that wineskin. Well, because it's a new wineskin, it's supple. It's flexible. It can respond to that inner pressure. It can take the form that the new wine wants it to take. And so it expands. It expands. It expands. And in those countries where they still use skins like that, sewn together and so forth, and bladders, it stretches. Now, if they empty that out and they take the same wine skin that's already been stretched and they fill that up with new wine, can you imagine how long it's going to take before that old wineskin blows up? The Holy Spirit is always a threat to old wineskins. Always. Here's what happens. You and I, as the people of God, discover intimacy with God at some point in our life. For example... 
In the 19th century, there were a series of revivals. In the mid-century of uh, 150 years ago, revival took place. One of the results of that revival is you had a lot of new Christians and a lot of, a lot of new leaders, and they needed to study the Bible, and they needed to grow, they needed to be trained. So what happened is in the middle of the 19th century, you had a rash of new colleges started, new schools were started to train people in ministry. That's just one example. You had other things. You had all kinds of ministries started. Salvation Army was started as a ministry to the poor. And you had out of that evangelical revival, that experience of God, the experience of the new wine, you had these new things, new institutions, new organizations that were started and launched. And in the beginning, they were perfect because they were the perfect structure for the life that was flowing through the church. Perfect. But there comes a time when a new structure is required. A new organization is required. And the old structure, for whatever reason, cannot any longer do what is needed to accomplish the Holy Spirit's work. What happens? That new structure changes. It becomes new. The old changes. It becomes new. Or the old one dies. And we've seen that in church history again and again and again. We fixate on the structure, on the form, rather than the spirit that created it. We fixate on the system rather than the spirit that for a season created that system and gave it life. The spirit comes and he always puts stress on anything that we've done. It may be old, it may be something we're hanging on to, but it always puts stress on it because when the Holy Spirit leads us, the Holy Spirit guides us, we got to go. We got to go. We just got to go. If you read the book of Acts, I, I encourage you sometime, maybe in one sitting, two sittings, just read through the book of Acts and then come tell me what you read about. The only history book we have outside of the Gospels of what was going on with the New Testament church is the book of Acts. What do we read there? We read over and over again, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said. Jesus looks at every Christian, looks at every one of us. He says, you've got to meet me at the cross. You've got to know my forgiveness for sin. I died on the cross for you. Your sins have been carried away. Everybody in Acts knew about that cross. But you need more than a cross. You need an empty tomb. And when they come to the empty tomb, he wants to bring every one of us to that empty tomb because that empty tomb shows us that Jesus is Lord. It actually says that in Romans, that Jesus died and was raised again, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. And when you and I come to an empty tomb, we come to the realization that Jesus Christ is Lord. I have to submit to that. I have to yield to him. My life is not my own. My future is not mine. My plans not mine. My direction in life is not mine. I come to an empty tomb. There's a force in this universe greater than death. I have to yield to him. And so Jesus wants to bring every Christian to that place where we surrender to him as our Lord. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, you know, if we just stop there, we might wind up like those Pharisees trying to keep all the rules. He wants to take you not only to the empty tomb, he wants you to take you to the upper room. In the book of Acts, the church 
who had spent time with Jesus three years, had been there at the cross, had seen him in his resurrected form. They were not allowed to move. They were not allowed to go forward. They were not allowed to do the Great Commission. They were not allowed to do anything. They were to wait until the promise of the Father had come on them, the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came on them, the Bible says they were full of God. He was leading them, directing them, and guiding them. They spilled out into the streets. They were so joyful. They were so happy because they weren't just talking about God now. They were experiencing God. And the people who had not known God in this way looked at them and they said, these people are drunk. They are full of new wine. I want to be full of new wine. Don't you? You see, God never called us to function as a church apart from his Holy Spirit. Everything we do as a church is supposed to be under his governance, his control. He is the CEO of Wind Baptist Church. He's the CEO of every church. Not every church knows that. Church is in trouble. Church is having a problem. Holy Spirit comes, says, choose seven men from among you who are full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Can you walk through this church and pick out seven men full of the Holy Spirit? It was an observable quality. It was something that you could see in a man, something you could observe in a man, that he was led by the Holy Spirit. The church is scattered after the persecution. The Holy Spirit comes along. He comes to a prayer meeting in Antioch, and there's a group of men who are there praying, and they're seeking God. They're just ministering to the Lord. They're just worshiping God. And the Holy Spirit speaks to that group, and he says, separate to me Paul and Barnabas. Take the two best men you've got, the two best leaders you've got. You take those men and send them out. Send them away. Don't keep them. Send them out. The Holy Spirit spoke. Later on, Paul is traveling through Asia Minor. He wants to go to Ephesus. The Holy Spirit forbids him. Don't go, Paul. Don't do it. He wants to turn to the northwest, to Mysia. The Holy Spirit says no. The Spirit of Jesus says forbade him to go. And all through this, all Paul is doing is trying to carry out the great permission and do the will of God. But he's not doing it based on his plan. He's doing it under an internal guidance system, the Holy Spirit. He's full of new wine. He's full of the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's all he cares about. All right, I wanted to go to Ephesus. The Spirit said no, that's okay, I can't go can't do it. I want to go up here. This seems like the most natural thing to do next. Go up here. No, you can't go, Paul. So he goes down to Troas, goes to sleep, has a dream in the night. Man from Macedonia, from Europe, says, come help us. Gets up the next morning, reaches a conclusion. God said no here. God said no here. But I had this vision in the night. And so God is saying yes to me. I'm supposed to take the gospel to Europe. He's full of new wine. I cannot experience Jesus the way he wants you and me to experience Jesus unless my life is like a supple receptive wineskin that responds to the internal pressure of the Holy Spirit and that my life will take the shape that he wants it to take it will go to places where he wants to push it and pull it and send it and it's true for a church as well what will it cost you to experience him? It'll cost you reliance on self. It'll cost you any resistance to the Holy Spirit. You can't resist the Spirit and be full of God. You just can't. But there's a third thing it'll cost you, and that's preference for the past. If I wasn't stepping on sacred ground, I'm stepping on it now. 
a preference for the past. Look at verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Look at that. The goal is to get the new wine. But there's a problem. People drinking the old wine says the old is better. I like it better. I don't want that new stuff. It's too costly. (laughs) The old is good. Obviously, taste for the new wine is not an automatic thing in a Christian. It's an acquired taste. It's a choice that you and I have to make. I want Jesus. I want the real deal. I don't want to play church. I don't want religion. I don't want man-made junk. I want Jesus. And that's a decision that you and I have to make. And so Jesus is pointing to a problem with our appetite in that verse, that we're attached to the wrong thing, one thing but the wrong thing. And that's that old form. And we have fixated on it. And I like it. Now, I'm sympathetic to that. Those of you who have talked to me, uh, when I've taught about leading change in a church, and um, right now I don't think I know a whole lot about it, but when I've taught about it, I am sympathetic, particularly to people my age and older. Uh, Those of you who have seen everything in your life change in a generation, customs change, respect change, morals change. You've seen it all change. And everything in society has changed. Communication has changed. Electronics have changed. Music has changed. Everything has changed. When you come to church, you thank God because there's one place in the world that hadn't changed. We sing the songs like we did when my grandmother was a baby. We do things the way my grandfather did them, and I love it. That church was where I was married. That church is where I'm going to be buried. That church is precious to me, and the way we do things is precious to me. So don't touch that thing, preacher. Don't touch that thing, committee. Don't touch that thing, people of God, because that's my church. It's the one thing in my whole life that hasn't changed. I'm sympathetic to that. I know it doesn't sound like it, but I am. But you got to see it from my point of view. I grew up in that also, and it was sending me to hell. I don't get excited about those things that you get excited about. I just don't. You call the pastor, he's wired differently than you. All I want to do is everything Jesus has in mind for us to do. That's it. And I don't pretend to be the only source for knowing what that is. I believe that God speaks to us as a church. But are we listening? Are we listening? Are we paying the price? Are we willing to go wherever he says to go? If he comes up to us, are we like Levi? Will we stand up and say, I'm following you? And leave everything to do it. Everything, even if that means my community, my family, my church, my comfort zone, everything that's precious to me, I want the new wine more than anything else. And so you refuse to say anymore that the old is better because you're hungry and your appetite has changed and you want the new wine. The great danger that churches are facing in this country is that change has come. In the face of what's going on in our world today, the Holy Spirit is speaking. He is speaking. He is leading. And He is leading churches where He wants them to go. 
And you and I can't sit still and expect to follow God in a world like this. We just can't. I could take you to to churches not too far from here right now, large churches. 25 years ago, they were busting at the seams. They were reaching people for Christ. They were baptizing people. Their pastors were having a great experience with God, and they were following, and they were rejoicing. 25 years later, I can take you to that same church. 200 young adult families left them last year. They hired a consultant to come in and talk to them about what they need to do differently. If they're going to reach young people, if they're going to reach young families, if they're going to reach people in the community, if they're going to do it. And the consultant said, here's what you're going to have to do, but you're not going to like it. And they didn't do it. And eventually you have a big building with a few people. And it's happening all over our country. Meanwhile, down the road, you've got new buildings springing up. New churches springing up. New congregations springing up. What is going on? Do you think that pleases the Lord? Do you think that's what he had in mind and what he intended? I don't believe so. But the Holy Spirit will not be denied. And his pressure will burst the old wineskin one way or another unless we follow him. Let go of the wineskin. You know, a train, if it's rolling down the tracks at high speed, you cut the power on that train, it's going to roll a long time before it stops. And a lot of churches haven't realized it, but the power was cut a long time ago. The power was cut a long time ago. We're still rolling down the tracks, so we think everything's okay. But it rolls slower and slower and slower. Meanwhile, on another set of tracks, another train pulls up. It's ready to roll. It's got a fully stoked engine. And your train's slowing down just as it's starting to pick up. Now, you have a choice to make. You can stay on that train that's about to stop, or you can say, I'm going to get on the train that's about to move. That train that has power. The train where the new wine is present, where the presence of Christ is at work. It's your choice. As an individual, I don't want to ever say no to the Holy Spirit.